0: Uh, Welcome to Sunday School, and this is exciting because this is our first day where we are actually officially starting the book of Daniel. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Daniel, comes right after Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 1. We won't do any sword drills right now to see who can get (laughs) get there the quickest. Daniel chapter 1, and uh, before we pray, which we'll do, Lord willing, just a second, uh, a quick word about the relevancy of Daniel for today. So, <clears throat> the first half of Daniel is those, includes those familiar stories that we a lot of us heard growing up, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, those kinds of stories that we're maybe more familiar with. <clears throat> the second half of Daniel… Which is chapters seven through twelve is a little bit more murky in a lot of our minds. It has to deal with prophecy about a lot of things that some of them have already happened, some things have not yet happened. But uh, we'll be getting more into that. So we'll get our prophecy hats on when we get later in Daniel. But this opening part, and really the whole book in a lot of ways, is preparing us to live. Now, see if this sounds relevant: preparing us to live in a pagan culture. In a pagan society. So these are kids taken away from Israel, and they are dumped into pagan Babylon, full of idolatry, full of ungodliness, full of people who hate the God of Israel, Yahweh, and want nothing to do with Him. And so I think increasingly as our culture veers off course and just seems to go continually in a direction that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You mentioned that, I think, in your sermon last week, how the culture just is sort of going… We we don't know where it's going to end up sometimes. But as we are living increasingly in Babylon, right… First Peter, you know, he wrote in the book, we think, from Rome. And what does he say at the end of the letter? I'm writing from Babylon. Why does he call Rome Babylon? Because the world in opposition to God is always Babylon. Ever since the Tower of Babylon, which the word Babel in, Greek, in Hebrew is actually the word Babylon, the Tower of Babylon, ever since the Tower of Babylon, man's independence from God has been running through the whole Bible, and that's why the Bible ends with what? Genesis, uh, Revelation 18 is the destruction of Babylon. Well, if you go to the Middle East, Babylon was destroyed a long time ago what are we talking about? God's going to one day destroy Babylon. Well, clearly, it's the world in opposition to the one true God, and there's a new heavens and new earth, and God's people enter into His eternal rest. And so, I think Daniel is unbelievably relevant to us as believers today, and Daniel 1 has a lot of practical applications for for our lives uh, as well. Papa Fred, could you… a contemporary of Daniel back in the day, he was… It, before Belteshazzar, Greg said this he was Daniel before he changed his name. He so knew Daniel Papa back knew him.
1: before he was Belteshazzar. Would you pray for us, Papa Fred? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Mark. First, I want to. Am I broadcasting? Out. Okay. Good. Uh, first, I want to read uh, from Second Chronicles, the last chapter, thirty-six, uh, verse twenty-three. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Th- the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Father, thank you that you can take, uh, in response to what Mark said, you can take a pagan ruler. Um, and have him acknowledge you as Lord and that he has a temple in Jerusalem and that you are sending his people who are captive back to rebuild that city and rebuild that temple. Father, it's amazing that that if, if Joseph and Daniel can operate at the apex of some great civilizations in the past, Uh, and use those civilizations to influence your kingdom, how much more can he do in this day and time with us if we would but take a position, be godly, be righteous, and stand up for the word of God and give glory and honor to your kingdom. Bless us now as we undertake this uh, study and for the message today. Amen.
0: Amen. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to look, we've got, uh, we're, for an, kind of an outline today, we're, we're relying heavily on Sinclair Ferguson and his really good uh, older commentary on Daniel. And uh, we're going to kind of walk through four big points, four big ideas. And uh, the first point is just the first two verses, and uh, calling this man's plans and God's plans for the first two verses. Uh, Greg, can you read the first two?
2: Yeah, be happy to. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God.
0: So just just give, zooming out and getting a really big picture here of what's going on. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God made a promise to Israel. He said, listen, if you guys will be faithful to the covenant, I will be faithful to you. But if you are unfaithful to the covenant, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. Just like on the Canaanites, they were judged for rebellion in the land of Canaan, so you will be judged. And so Israel… Now, people often say the Old Testament is about God being angry all the time. And that is a horrible caricature of the God of the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is the same exactly as the God of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. But actually, the Old Testament is really a picture of a patient God, because God made this covenant with Israel in the year, what, 1440 B.C.? And in 1340, they'd still been breaking it, not to mention golden calf and all kinds of things. And in 1240, they're still breaking it. In 1140, they're still breaking it. In 1040, in 940, in 840, in 740, in, uh, wait, am I missing my date? Uh, 586, we're going to 586. How many centuries go by and what is God doing? He's continuing to sustain Israel and to have a degree of real blessing on Israel despite centuries of idolatry and rebellion, worshiping Asherah poles and all that kind of stuff in the land, every high place. There was sexual morality related to pagan idolatry. This is going on for centuries. And finally, not the God of wrath so much as the God of patience, says Israel, I love you, but I have to keep my word. You have been unfaithful for this many centuries. I am going to now do what I promised in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the very first books I wrote to you and gave to you through Moses. I am going to send judgment on you, and I'm going to do it by the hands of the most wicked nation in the world. And remember, Habakkuk wonders, God, how can you use a more evil nation to judge a less evil nation and then later punish that nation for what they did according to your sovereign plan? How does this work? And Habakkuk struggles to understand, but God says, no, I'm gonna use Babylon as a tool in my hand to bring disciplinary action on Israel and um, I'm gonna gonna allow them to judge uh, his people. So what do we learn in these first two verses here?
2: God will judge sin, not just at the end, but throughout history. Um, Evil nations and evil societies will eventually, if they don't repent and turn from it, experience the wrath of God. Uh, Like you said, Canaan had centuries before of, of ungodly, like in stuff that you know offering their children in the fire to molech and various things mediums necromancers communion with the dead uh, various things god bore with them for centuries and they did not turn from their sin they continued in it only got hardened in it and god used israel as the agent of judgment on them but israel like you said same thing happened to them and i think we, as we look through daniel we look through other you know, throughout history, God uses nations to bring His judgment on nations. We can't always fathom every single thing that God's doing in that, but I think it's right to see historically that wicked peoples only have so long before the judgment of God falls.
0: And, and we don't want to mistake, like, America is not in any way Israel in the Old Testament. Some, some Christians will make a mistake about how we view America versus Israel in the Old Testament, like it's the new Israel. That's not, that's not correct. But just think about our country For almost, what, 50 years now, Roe v. Wade has been legal in the country, 65 million unborn babies killed legally, uh, a lot of it with congressional funding, right, with Planned Parenthood and all, all this stuff. When we think of God, if people primarily think of God as a God of wrath, just look, 50 years, God has endured our country where we have murdered by the tens and hundreds of thousands, unborn children, legally, with with an enormous number of people passionately for this. And God, what does He do? He brings the sun up every morning. He brings the rain. He brings the sun to set. He continues to give us oxygen in in our lungs. He continues to allow us to have life and in some degree have real prosperity in the midst of all this. To think God is mainly a God of wrath is to completely misunderstand who we are and who He is. He is a holy God, and we are an unbelievably corrupt culture, and we are part of this culture, right? It's like, Isaiah, I have an unclean mouth, and so does everybody else. It's like, we're, we're part of this whole thing. The sin of, that we see in our culture, the seeds of those sins lie dormant in our own hearts. They're there in our own hearts that we see springing up. And so, we need to be aware of God's incredible patience and kindness. and His invitation to, to come to Him for, for salvation.
3: Yeah, I just look at these first two verses again and cuz Ferguson said you see the sort of secular history and then you see sort of biblical theology or biblical history. Let me read verse 1 again, of Daniel 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So there you have sort of secular history. That's what you're going to read in the history books, right? Like in a a public high school or something, that's what you're going to get. That's the only side you're going to see of history is this, no mention of God at all. But verse 2 is sort of the biblical side, biblical history. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. There's the, the behind the scenes, God is sovereign and in control of world history. So I think there's just massive application all through Daniel 1, but right of the way at the beginning, you see God is in sovereign control over the big things in life, over world history, but he's also in sovereign control over the uh, interpersonal things. He's gonna, we're going to see this here. God's going to give favor to Daniel. You're going to see it three times, I guess, in the, in the, in the text in, in chapter 1. But So God is in sovereign control over world history, but he's in sovereign control over our lives. So the application I take away from Daniel 1 and 2 is what we talked about two weeks ago. This is the ballast and the bow that God is sovereign and good. He has to be trusted. He has to be trusted with our lives. There's nothing, uh, one, one pastor said, there's nothing incidental or accidental in our lives. Everything is, is purposeful that he brings into our lives. It's Psalm 31, that our times are in his hands, I think Alistair Begg just said, we want to regularly be praying, you know, Lord, my times are in your hands. Help me to trust you. So I just think even just the two, first two verses, you think on them, and be reminded that God is sovereign, he's good, there's nothing accidental in my life, he's using it to conform to the image of his son, and we wanna be praying regularly, Lord, help me to trust you, to remember that my times really are in in your hands.
0: On that point, so if, if, it doesn't matter what channel you're watching, by the way, if you watch the news, you're gonna get verse one, you're not gonna get verse two, right? So you're, you're gonna get the events of the day, this nation attacked this nation. This person did this thing. Here's what's going on with COVID. Here's what's going on with the vaccines. And you're like, okay, I'm sick of hearing about all this stuff. They're just, that's the news all day, every day. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. Verse two is left out. Who, who in the world is saying, and here's what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing in this world, according to his word, in the midst of the chaos of all that's around us. Here, here's what the Lord is showing us. Here's what the Lord's doing to us. Here's what the Lord is reminding us of through these events. You're going to get verse one all day, every day. You're never going to get verse two. And if you leave God out of the news, you're unbelievably shallow. You're you're the most superficial interpreter of world events you can imagine because you might know all the facts on the ground, but you have no idea of the why. You can never say anything about the why is this happening. But we as Christians, we can actually, I mean, with humility and not totally, but there are certain things we can say for sure. We know why or what God is doing in certain things. He's reminding us of the shortness of life. He's reminding us of our need for repentance, et cetera, et cetera. He, he is reminding us, working through these things. And so we need the Bible deeply because we have to have number two, verse two, to interpret the events
1: of of, of verse one. And another thing, I think in verse two, you see… Uh detail. Uh, he mentions the Lord gave King Joachim of uh, Judah into his hand, but some of the vessels of the house of God. We'll see those vessels again with the uh, drunken feast of Belshazzar later on. And Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not defending him, but Nebuchadnezzar actually uh, put those vessels, 5,400 of them, see that's how scrip- specific scripture is, in a a treasury or in a museum. Uh, now he didn't worship them or anything, but he he kept them there. Belshazzar actually took them out and used them to defile um, Yahweh and to uh, offer sacrifices to his god Baal. And and so there's detail. A lot of detail. This is that one one verse too. Uh, so we'll see those vessels again and remember that that God is into details. He remembered that they took 5,400 silver and golden vessels from the temple in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem.
0: All right, well, let's move to point number two. This is verses 3 through 7. And see if this sounds, again, relevant to our lives. It's kind of amazing. Point two, government brainwashes the youth. Does that sound in any way possibly relevant to our lives? So the government, the Babylonian government, is going to do everything they can to brainwash not the elderly. They probably know that won't work so well. They target who? the youth, the young. Why? Because the youth are the ones who are going to be here in a generation. The youth are the ones who are the most impressionable. The youth are the ones that are most likely to throw out what they grew up with and to take a new belief system, whatever it may be. I mean, think think about this. When did did, uh, a lot of things change in your own life in your thinking about God and Christianity? For some, you may have been very young, but for a lot of people, you pick from about 16 to about 25 or 26. How many people get converted? In those years, now you can get converted at 88, right? We, we've seen that with Miss Dorothy. You, we, you can get converted any time in life, but man, about 16 to 26 or so—that that area is when the Lord seems to do so much in people's lives. And Daniel and his friends were almost certainly teenagers when they are taken away from their hometown into Babylon to try to be brainwashed into Babylonian uh, paganism. And um, I'll let you guys speak into this, but there is no question—the Bible does not give anything explicit here, so I admit this is a guess, but I don't think it's a hard guess. There's almost no question that Daniel, and then what they become known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they must have had some incredible parents in their life. Because how in the world can you be 15, 16, taken away from home and do what they did with the faithfulness that they showed in a pagan culture where everyone was against them and even their lives were at stake? I mean, everything was on the line, and they stayed faithful no matter what was thrown at them? And they were there, remember, Daniel is there until he's almost 90, because Daniel lives through the 70 years of exile, and he's still in Babylon. So Daniel, when he's thrown into the lion's den, is in his 80s at least. He may be 90 when he is thrown into the lion's den. He's not a kid anymore. How in the world does he build towards such incredible faithfulness? The answer, I think, has to be his upbringing had to have been. Just like with with so many biblical characters, the the, the parents must have poured into the children in such a way that left that indelible impression about the, the truth of God's Word that led them to faithfulness when they were in exile.
1: How many, um, in, in working with college students in the last, I don't know, 15, 16 years, I, I've, I've seen kids go away to school and you know struggle with identity, struggle with their faith, and and they'll hop from um, uh, you know from uh, Watkinsville to uh, SWAT or or Wesley or whatever, trying to find that connection and um, uh, some of them find it and some of them don't and, and and if you don't Daniel was in the probably in the range of 14 to 17 years old most of the commentators say so he was pretty young but uh, in in most college kids we see on campus are around 18 I guess 17 18 and if if, if, if you don't find the Lord in, in that and and don't have that legacy from your parents and 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 don't find it when you're in college. Then typically you don't come back to the Lord until much later in life. And uh, so that's the, your isolation. You made a point. That you're you're away from home. You're 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 indoctrinated. None of our secular institutions are preaching Jesus. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's it's contrary to that. And uh, I know at UGA and and at other schools as well. And, um, and so you have to compromise, you know, what do I do? And, uh, uh, you know, and, and it is confusing when you're confronting with all, confronted with all these worldviews, and you don't know the difference, so.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's look through, so here, uh, Sinclair Ferguson's helpful, he has four little uh, sub-points here for this idea of the, the youth being taken to Babylon. He says, Babylon uses, and there's four words here, uh, isolation, number two, indoctrination, Number three, compromise. And number four, confusion. So isolation, indoctrination, compromise, and confusion. Let's start with isolation. Why why is isolation in particular such a difficult thing to deal with, especially, really at any age, but especially uh, for for those who are younger?
2: Well, you're away from anyone who can influence you differently. Um, And especially at that age, you're very moldable, very impressionable, and I don't think that would be that much different I mean, especially considering their whole world just got upended. I mean, they saw their their city overtaken. They have been, wh- however you want to call it, kidnapped, taken back to a foreign land. How many hundreds of miles away? They're a completely new environment. Um, I mean, these are the the cream of the crop in terms of like the Judean nobility. The you know the young people, and you know we're taking the best of what they have, and we're putting them in a new place. Completely out of their element. That in itself is is hard to deal with, um, and then they're planning. You know, as we're going to see, a what a three year program of indoctr like you said, indoctrination. But that indoctrination becomes more more likely when you're away from any influence that could that could tell you differently. I mean, I'm I'm sure they, you know, it wasn't just isolated from their homeland, but I mean, they might have been with each other, but they were isolated from any godly influence.
0: Can you read verses three through seven yeah, this part? Yeah, let's read
2: that. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food, that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego.
0: Yeah, so you see here, not only are they isolated, but the indoctrination, Um, Man, it it is of such importance who is educating our children, what the worldview is of the people who are educating our children, what our children are being asked to read. Now, we're not the kind of people who say, don't read what a non-Christian wrote. What we're saying is, who is the tour guide when you are reading what a non-Christian wrote. You see what I'm saying? Who is the person who can say, listen, here's where they're right in part, here is where they're dangerously mistaken. Because if the if the professor or the teacher agrees with the unbiblical worldview, then they're just gonna be shouting amen to everything that's in the textbook or whatever it is. And then the child now is going, Okay, my teacher has a PhD, so what do I know compared to them? This person's been teaching here for 35 years, so they've, they've answered every question. They know seemingly, almost feel like omniscient. Like they know everything about this subject matter. And here we are reading this textbook, and the people who wrote this, there's several people. They all have PhDs. This is, seems extremely well-researched, and it's saying things that contradict biblical truth on almost every page. And if there's no tour guide helping you from a Christian perspective, my goodness, how are you not going to be lost in a very short time? I don't care if this is elementary school, which, I mean, you know, think about how things are getting these days. If I can just be very blunt here, I mean, you've got, um, you've got like drag queen hour, have you seen this? Where, where someone who, a man who's dressed in drag will come in and read uh, the, the, the children's story for like kindergartners, first graders in school, and they will be dressed out in full drag queen regalia, and they will sit there and they'll read to the child. Okay, I've seen a picture of, I mean, it's, it's almost unspeakable, but you, know, you have a class of students, and they were taken to uh, a gay bar during the day, and there were several gay men who were explaining how this, this thing works, and there was a whole bunch of very young children with their teachers in the picture. Now, that's an extreme example, but then again, after about a month, it won't even be extreme anymore because something else will have taken its place. But my point is this, stuff that was unthinkable 20 years ago is now happening, and I'm looking at images of it on, on the news. So, we need to be so careful who is educating our young people, what they are saying to our young people, and then who is the tour guide on this education that they're taking, because it is not long before deeply unbiblical things are going to creep in and take over. And their goal here was educate them. Look at verse 4. Uh, toward the end of the verse, it says youths, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And then it says they were to be educated in verse 5 for three years at the end of that time to stand before the king. So, a three-year indoctrination program to all the, the
3: pagan beliefs of, of Babylon. Yeah, I'll just say one more thing about the, the you think about their parents. Uh, just, I'm struck by that. You, you don't even, when you read this, you don't think that they're this young, but they're teenage kids. I mean, you think of the tour guide, they had these wonderful probably models uh, that were guiding them through the Bible to help them along the way. And just that, I mean, it's just worth emphasizing. And again, we've emphasized it many times, but the, the, the godly legacy of godly parents, the, the impact that has, and I was just listening to uh, Valerie Shepherd's the only daughter of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. She died when her dad was two and- He died. She, he died at 28 and she was two years old, and like four months. But I heard her speaking about her parents and she couldn't even speak. She was so emotional about this godly influence they had had on her. She hardly knew her father, but his writings and everything had such an impact that 66 years after his death, she still can't even speak about this godly legacy of her parents. So just that, oh man, they must have had godly parents and that we need to want to invest in our kids and all those ways. That's just huge to emphasize. But I just think even the other application here for us is... That Babylon was seeking to press them into its mold. And this is the same thing that the world is seeking to press us into our mold every single day. We're just being bombarded with, uh, it's like you were saying, like on, on the news, you're never going to see something about God said this or whatever. People say Mother Nature or this thing, but Mother Nature doesn't even exist. It's like, a, uh, you might as well say the tooth fairy, I think, what, what our dad said one time. It's like it doesn't exist, but that's the, the, what they're pressing. And every, every ad you see, it's, it's, it's worldliness is just pressing us, pressing us, pressing us. And I, for me, it's, we need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We need to come back to the Word of God, and we need each other. I think this is so important why we need the fellowship of God's people. I was thinking about Spurgeon said, your people come every Sunday. They're, they're worn down with the, with the trials of the world. They're worn down with being pressed into the world's mold. And that's why we've got to come around each other, help each other to pull each other out of this and, and remind each other of the Christian worldview. But we face this same type of pressure. I mean, you can see it clearly how, but we have it maybe more subtly, but we need to be aware of, one pastor of the world's stratagems of, the, of worldliness. It's just constant upon us, whether we may see it or not. But every program you watch has got to, I think that with our son, Michael, everything. It may seem innocent, but mm-hmm. it's like, where is God? Like, where is God and Gary George? They don't mention God, which they should, because God is the creator of our world. Uh, so yeah, we just, the world is trying to press into its mold. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Just on that point, with with kids' shows...
0: Uh, you're you're going to see that that they're going to be, and I think this is intentional. Whether it is intentional or not is, doesn't matter. But I think it is intentional. Y- you see, for instance, gender roles are always going to be flipped backwards in, yes. in children's books. So, so suddenly, like my son is reading this children's book that we're looking at, and, and suddenly he's starting to get cues as to what's normal male behavior and what's normal female behavior, and it's backwards. Like, normally it is backwards, and so. It, that's gonna start, if I don't, if I don't come in there and take the book and throw it in the trash can, which I've had to do <laughs> on several occasions, uh, where did the book go? It, don't worry about it. Uh, it. It's in a better place. Uh, it went to book, I don't know, heaven or hell on that one, but uh, it's, in a, it's in a better place. So, you, you got these books, and I actually, like, We sometimes we actually have a, a book program where they send us free books from who knows who's making these things. So, I'll actually go through them, and I've told y'all before, like, there was a, uh, one book, this, these are made for, like, three to five-year-old kids, and they come in the mail. So, I open it up, and I'm, I'm leafing through it, and I see on one page, it's, I think it was a, park scene, and there's a same-sex couple, two men walking a dog, and it was clearly done in such a way that it was, you could tell it was a same-sex couple or whatever. So, these are intentional decisions, and they're trying to get into our three-year-old's minds so that my three-year-old daughter Molly is thinking, of course, she never saw that book. It went to the trash can instantaneously. Ah. But if Molly, if if I was just like a regular parent around here in Athens probably, I'd get the book. Oh, free book, thank you whoever sent this to us. Okay, here you go, let's read this story. And suddenly, without even really realizing what she's absorbing, she's absorbing what gender is not to be, thinking it's normal. She's, she's, She's absorbing things about marriage and about sexuality that she doesn't even understand yet, but she's starting to absorb categories that are simply going to be destructive in unimaginable ways. And in her mind, it's just what she would consider to be basically normal, what she grew up with, what she thought. So
1: we cannot be too careful about about that. See, I wasn't even thinking about three to five year olds. I was thinking about maybe the age of kids that you guys teach. So yeah. It, so it's 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 coming in at that young age. and Of course, not having children of that age, I'm not that familiar with those those kind of books. You're better off, Papa Fred. <laughs> yeah. You're better off.
2: Well, can I, I yeah. say one thing on that? Like you guys are, are hitting on something very important is we we don't need to be fooled into thinking that academia is neutral. Like that like if if anything is destructive to a home, it's assuming that people are just neutral, they're going to have a good intention, they wouldn't purposefully lead you astray, you know, this is what a whole generation you know, didn't even question what the public schools taught. Well, because it's the public school, oh, they're not gonna do anything bad. They're not gonna teach anything wrong. And we've got a whole generation that doesn't even know how to critically think because parents, and, I, and I'm not saying that in a condemning way, but it's just, we trusted people and we, we forgot that in a foreign land, guess what? They're not neutral, they have an agenda. They are gonna do a reverse evangelism and try to win us out of whatever, wherever we are to their perspective and they're gonna do it persuasively. They're gonna do it as energetically. They're going to do their best to make our position look bad, ignorant, backwards, stupid. Why in the world would you believe that? They are pressing that and it hit me because I remember when I was at Georgia, I had to take an Eastern religions class and again, Oh, they're just going to describe these religions. I had a professor um, in that class who, uh, I'm not going to say his name in case anybody knows him, but um, you know, he didn't just describe his, his own beliefs about Taoism, which I'm not even going to get into. He preached it. Like he was trying to convert that class to Taoism while mocking Christianity the whole time. And if we don't equip our families and our kids to go into this saying, listen, it's not just that they have a different opinion. They hate what you believe and they're going to do everything they can to convince you out of it. Like we're setting them up to just get get run over by a freight train. Like the, the world is actively hostile to what we believe. And we got to remember that.
0: You're just, I mean, again, agreeing with you entirely. Uh, long story short a, I guess, assistant professor of religion at UGA, who was actually my age exactly. We were born like a week apart. Uh, he contacted me on social media because he had seen something I'd posted that he did not like because uh, I was critical of UGA's religion department, which he's a part of. So he's like, hey, I saw something. you I'm like, how did you see that? But we had a mutual friend who liked it, and so then it showed up on his newsfeed. You got to love Facebook. So uh, this guy sends me a message in my inbox and says, hey, would you mind getting lunch because I'd like to talk to you? We don't say, we, we don't try to like distort the Bible, all this stuff you're accusing us of. That's not true. So I said, I would love to get lunch. So we went, to Barbaritos on the east side, where all good things happen, and uh, <laughs> we, sat, we sat down, and uh, we're eating, and this was just, like, we probably met for maybe an hour and a half or something, and this guy was extremely knowledgeable. He's doing his PhD in Leviticus, okay? I'm like, all right. So we're talking, and he was fascinated by the Old Testament. He's, I think, an assistant professor. He's on his way probably to be becoming like a full professor, but uh, as we were talking, it became clear to me, yes, this guy knows An extraordinary amount, no question about it. We were going back and forth on all kinds of stuff. And uh, what also struck me was, when, when I started asking him questions, and I won't get into all the details of this, but basically, do you think Moses wrote the Pentateuch? Of course not right? The first five books of the Bible, which of course the Bible and Jesus say he did. And and then you go, okay, do you think the events that happened in the Exodus, do you think the miracles, the Red Sea, the the, the plagues, do you think that really happened? Of course that didn't happen. Of course not. And Then we go, what about Jericho and the walls falling down? I'm not a fool, kind of is what he's saying to me. I don't believe that. So we get all the way through. He rejected an enormous amount of material in the Old Testament, not to mention I don't know what all he rejects in the New Testament. He's an Old Testament guy. So by the end of the conversation, I'm going, okay, This is exactly what I was saying in my post online, was that you are going to use uh, scholarship and intelligence and your PhD and your knowledge to try to dissuade young Christian kids who don't, maybe haven't studied some of this stuff, they're going to get into your class and they're going to find out that uh, the first five books of the Bible was made up by the documentary hypothesis, you know, the JEDP, and there's four different sources, it has nothing to do with Moses, and blah, 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 and it kind of formed almost like an evolutionary kind of way over a long period of time, and it finally was settled, not until this late date, and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going, okay, this is exactly what my post was about, and you're confirming everything I, 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 am, I, I don't like. And just to give one more part here, we've got to move on. But one, one other point, there was a girl that my wife and I knew uh, who was in one of these religion classes. It wasn't with this guy. It was with another uh, professor, a, a woman who I won't say her name. And um, after taking a New Testament class, she comes to a Bible study that I, I'm in. A few of you were in the, in the Bible study, and uh, she, she says she was starting to doubt whether or not, for instance, did Peter really write his letters, 1st and 2nd Peter? Did Paul really write 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus? And and they they had heard all these counter-arguments. And so I'm trying to deal in the Bible study how to give them arguments against those. And and just, we cannot be, we don't want to be naive. We want to know what's going on. But we don't want to be put in an environment like that where we're going to be overwhelmed by those arguments and not have a way to defend what we actually believe to be true. And and I think that's a huge uh, issue.
2: Because there is a way. Like that's the thing, there is a defense, there is an answer, most of the time they don't want to hear it.
0: That's exactly right. But
2: there is, there is an answer to all their objections.
0: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Okay, we'll keep moving here. Uh, We are now number three to compromise. There's a desire here for them to eat the king's food. Verse
3: five, Scott, can you read verse five? You mean verse eight? Uh, Verse five. Verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king.
0: Now, what, eating the king's food—what could possibly be so bad about this? This has got to be some great uh, food. What, what would be Nebuchadnezzar's goal here in trying to get them on his side?
1: To defile the uh, the food laws uh, of the Jews. I mean, that might have been pork. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what was uh, included in that diet, but it was obviously because because they they asked to eat vegetables. It uh, must have had something to do with with the. Um, perhaps the meat. And their their food was also dedicated to idols, which mm-hmm. is something that, of course, the New Testament addresses too. Uh, so uh, that was one of the reasons why I think Daniel took his stand. And that was a risky stand there, right up front. He went to his, I guess, his supervisor, the chief eunuch, and say, hey, can I make a bargain? Can I make a deal with you? We Will eat." vegetables for 10 days. And if, if we're scrawny, then you win. But if not, and, and it turned out favorably for them, but he had the, uh, the faith to stand up to him and, and to ask that. I don't think he was hostile. Mm-hmm. And one of the really, really quick thing is that whether you're talking about Joseph or Daniel, they must have had some real skill and finesse in in the way they addressed their mm-hmm. uh, su- uh, superiors, because they won over Pharaoh and and kings, Persian kings, uh, Babylonian kings over and over again. So
0: yeah, they, they maintained a respectful way of speaking to the kings and the hierarchies yes. of. Among we got to remember that, yes. not
1: not mm-hmm. being bad, you know. Mad Baptist or something, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Can I can I add to talk about the flip side of that? Because one, how I 100% agree how we how we handle ourselves like it matters. We don't have an excuse to be jerks, to be rude. Um, you know, to, to have our, our nose in the air because, hey, I'm, I'm Christian and you're not, and I'm smarter, holier, whatever, better than you. Um, the, the flip side of that, if we read just a little bit, look at Daniel 8 and 9. This is the key. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And then look at the beginning of verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. We do everything we can. We bend over backwards to, to, be, to be well-spoken, to be respectful. Um, but at the end of the day, if, if we have favor, it's because God gives it. Right. Um, it's not because uh, we, we impress the world. It's because God turns hearts and gives favor, and we have to remember that.
3: And that, that may, go That's a so rather point. No, I was just thinking, verse 8, I love verse 8. Let me just read that again at the beginning, the first part, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And Fred's getting at maybe one of the reasons why. I think we don't know exactly for sure why they drew the line here, but they drew the line. And I think one guy said Daniel saw this was going to be spiritually detrimental to him if he crossed this line. So he drew this line down. And I love what Alistair Begg said about this. He said, the lines may be drawn in different places, but drawn they should be, and crossed they must not be. That is just one terrain on which lines have to be carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully drawn. So all of us need to be thinking clearly, carefully about this. We're all going to draw lines in our life that we're just not, once we draw this, our conscience is going to be bound by this. I'm not going to go over this, this line. And I think if something's going to be spiritually detrimental to us, no matter how good it may be, like for me, it's sports. If I do too much sports, it's going to be spiritually detrimental. I have to draw the line with it, not too much sports intake. So I think we just need to think, what is going to be spiritually detrimental to me and my life? And I need to draw lines here and then on the opposite what we've talked about many times is what's going to be spiritually beneficial and just fill our lives with those things it just seems so obvious to us but i really think we need to think about these things spiritually detrimental Draw the line, I'm not going to go that far. Spiritually beneficial, what are those things? I mean, obviously the Word of God and the fellowship of God's people, these are absolutely essential in prayer, but I think other things. For me, it's like Christian biographies. I need to be dipping in them because they're so helpful to me to just take me out of my world, get into somebody who's suffered and watching them trust God. That is so good for me. So just thinking in in those lines. Again, Daniel was a teenager and yet he had this resolve. I'm going to be holy here. I'm not going to be, this is going to be spiritually detrimental. I'm I'm going to draw the line here.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, thinking for us to like, Just take like one category, like say entertainment, there are certain things clearly Christians should never watch, and it, you can't justify it, and we should just stare stay clear of those. But then there are, there are kind of gray matters and certain entertainment issues, and so a question you've got to ask is obviously if there's like nudity and sex scenes and stuff like that, you should not be watching that. But if say it's something that seems neutral, you're like I, I can I can rationalize I can watch this or not or whatever it may be, then the question you've got you've got to be so aware of this when you want. So if you start watching a TV show and it's like you know it's multiple seasons and you're going to work through it over the course of maybe several months, what effect does it have on your affections for Christ. Amen. Because I will just, I'll tell you something, I can pick a show that I can totally justify on every level watching, but it just, it, it, it unravels my heart toward Christ. It just, it does not strengthen my love for Christ. It, it's hard to explain what this even is, but there are certain things I'll watch, and, and you would think there's nothing wrong with that on the surface level, but it just leads my heart away. It makes my heart more numb or callous to spiritual things. It, it bends me the wrong direction spiritually. And so th- that's gonna be a personal question. I can't answer for you, you can't answer for me what some of that's gonna look like, but you will know your own heart. And, and, and you'll have to say, okay, what, what my friend can watch, and it's not a sin, I'm gonna draw the line, I'm resolved. I cannot go near this show or I can't watch this movie or these movies because for me, it just does not do good for me. It, it, leads me, it might, might lead you to coveting. It might lead you to whatever it may be. But I, I'm going to have to leave, leave that out, and I, I can't go there. So find the line for you personally and draw that line in the sand. And, and as I think Spurgeon said, uh, I don't know who said it. When it when someone said this. You, you've got to draw the line before you're in the heat of that moment. Yeah. where are making that decision. Because suddenly, when the decision's being made live in front of you, it's too late. You, you're, you're too going to be biased in your thinking to, to go one way or the other. You're not going to think clearly. It's like a kid getting invited to a slightly inappropriate party. If, if he's waited till that moment to make that decision, he's probably going to make the wrong decision, or she. Because the pressure and the, the bias of the moment will make you justify it. But if you can step back in the cool of a distance from that and say, okay, I know I'm not doing this, but I know it's okay for me to do this, and draw those lines in your own mind and in your own heart, then when the time comes, you're not trying to fumble for an answer in the moment, on the phone or in person. You, you know, no, I, I don't think that's going to work for me. Uh, thanks for asking, but I'm going to do this instead. You, you, you're, you're resolved ahead of time, and, and I think as a young person especially, that's, that's a great time to make those decisions.
2: We need to finish reading, and well, I guess we don't have time to read the whole thing and talk about it. Um, but I think it is interesting. Uh, let's let's read a little bit further in uh, verse uh, ten. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, "I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king?" Then Daniel said to the steward of whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Like, okay, number one, this is not recommending a Daniel diet, a 10-day special Daniel eating plan. If that's what you come away with, you've totally missed the intent of the author. Um, so if you have a book like that, there might be some wisdom um, in terms of good, healthy eating, but it doesn't come from this book. Um, because, I mean, we should know this intuitively. If you eat a lot of meat and drink wine, you're, you're going to fill out. You're going to fill out, Okay. They ate vegetables and they filled out better. So I think we have to see some, somewhat of, of God's miraculous mm-hmm. intervention here in terms of the fact, not that if you eat vegetables, it's gonna be unhealthy. You can eat nothing but vegetables and, and be healthy, but something about this, like it says, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. So whatever that meant, they looked healthier and bigger and more, whatever, robust than these folks who were eating the food that naturally does that. And so I I think God blessed their faithfulness in an unusual circumstance in eating something that might not normally give you certain appearance, it did in this case.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I do think part of Nebuchadnezzar's thinking here was, if they can come eat from my table, and yes, I I do think there was, uh, you know, dedication to gods and all that kind of stuff, and I'm sure there was unclean food in the midst of all that food, but I think part of what's going on is just saying, if you can enjoy how good my table is, you'll want to sit with me at my table. He's connecting himself, Nebuchadnezzar, with this sumptuous feast, and he's saying, listen, if you want the good life… I can give it to you. Your God cannot give you the good life. I can give you the good life. This is, look at this. This is the king's feast. I'm letting you sit at my, eat food from my own table. And I, part of it, I, I, I Part of me thinks that at least part of what Daniel and his friends are doing and drawing this line is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need you and your table and your meat and your wine. We can do well with this little. We got a little salad over here, and we're going to be looking better than anybody by God's miraculous blessing because we're relying on Him. We're not relying on you. And I think part of his resolution was distancing himself from needing Nebuchadnezzar, but but needing only Yahweh, and Yahweh provides them with. Like you mentioned, the the physical uh, strength that they needed uh, just
3: from, from eating the food you would not expect would produce that kind of look. You know, I would just say, one other thing I would just say, uh, they were resolved to be holy, and I think we want to be resolved to be holy at the end of the day, and one of the big thing we can take away, there's so much more we could say, but I was just thinking about this, lots of motivations in the Bible to be holy, but the big one for me is God's love for sinners in Christ. I mean, this is the motivation, like Christ has died for me, he, I've been redeemed by His blood, and now we, I want to draw these lines in a way that will be honoring to Him. He has saved me by His blood, I come back to the atonement, come back to the gospel again and again. This is going to motivate me out to be resolved to be holy, it's going to help me to fulfill that is living in light of, of God's grace in, in Christ again and again. We need it uh, if we're going to want to live this life of holiness.
0: Okay, we're, we're close to wrap it up. Let me read the last few verses of the chapter, seven, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first uh, year of King Cyrus, which again is many decades later on down the road. But you see here God's incredible blessing on them in the midst of, of their work. Any, uh, as we wrap up here, any
3: closing thoughts? I'll just say one, one thing from Sinclair Ferguson said that uh, they were learning the faithfulness of God and his ability to keep them in trials. Again, God, when we, we face temptations, we, we lean into the, to the Lord to help us. He's promised to help us. There's a way of escape. So again, we're just, our, our times are in his hands. We want to pray that we will trust him and he will help us and keep us in the trials. And the trials are never meaningless. Well, on that point, think about this.
0: The stories, we, You know, when, when people mention Daniel, how many of us mention the vegetable part? That's not the part we go to first. We did not lion's den, Lines, thinking, it, you know, the fiery, fiery furnace. furnace. Those are the big glamorous moments, right? The big amazing moments, which even Hebrews mentions about uh, stopping, the edge, uh, stopping the mouths of lions and, and quenching the fire uh, in Hebrews 11, which I think refers to Daniel. But I think that maybe the most important moment in the entire book of Daniel for Daniel and his friends mm-hmm. is we, we just read it. Because… Think about it, the decisions you make early, do they have trajectories that go one way or the other? I think that you're seeing the… the all that is to come is explained by the res- resolution here. The resolve in their heart to say, I will and I won't do these things. That is what made Daniel Daniel. That's what made these other guys who they became. The, 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 they didn't start with the fiery furnace, they started with a much smaller test. But those who pass the smaller tests are more likely to pass the greater, and those who are faithful with little will be faithful over much. And so I think this is maybe the most important moment in their lives, this resolution, and it leads to… all. All the heroic moments that we see later on.
2: Would you pray for us, Greg? Yeah, i be happy to. Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of the book of Daniel. Um, Lord, there's so much here already. Lord, that we've been able to, to consider this, this afternoon, and we're grateful, Lord, for Daniel's courage and that of his, his friends, Lord, in the midst of a, an incredibly hostile environment uh, and pressures and forces from outside wanting to mold them. Into an image different than you would have for them, Lord, we see your grace at work, your favor on them. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged in our own lives to, to remain faithful to all that we profess uh, to, to hold, hold fast to as Christians. Lord, the, the truths of the gospel, the way you call us to live, the testimony we are to have in our society. Lord, help us not fear man, but fear you more. Lord, help us not be afraid of the wrath of man because we don't go the way the world goes. May we love you and your truth more than anything. Uh, and Lord, we know you will use that as a powerful testimony to the world around us. Uh, but Lord, help us to, to persevere as Daniel and his friends did and to trust you even when when it seems like nothing good could come from doing so. But God, you are sovereign. <clears throat> you are sovereign over Nations, you are sovereign over people. And Lord, none can go any further than you permit. And so help us trust that even rulers and leaders who want us to be other than we are, God, they too exist and stay in existence each moment by your sovereign hand. Um, And so Lord, help us to trust in you and not walk afraid in this world, but walk confidently because we know you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.